This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Stephen Gergovich, who is affectionately known at Sounds True as Dr. G. Dr. Gergovich is a licensed psychologist who specializes in medical hypnosis. Currently, he is the director of the Mind Body Clinic at Dr. Andrew Wiles' Arizona Center of Integrative Medicine, and he's also the author of several Sounds True audio programs, including the Self-Hypnosis Home Study Course, and Deep Sleep with Medical Self-Hypnosis, as well as the book and CD set, The Self-Hypnosis Diet. He'll also be teaching an upcoming online course beginning on May 5th on the power of self-hypnosis. I spoke with Dr. Gergovich about how self-hypnosis works and the role our subconscious mind plays in healing. Welcome, Dr. Gergovich, or Dr. G, as I call you. Hi, Tammy. It's good to hear your voice. Beginning on May 5th, Sounds True will be offering the self-hypnosis online course. And I'd love to talk with you more about self-hypnosis and help our listeners, first of all, just even understand what is self-hypnosis. I think there are a lot of misconceptions and ideas related to what we might have seen on stage with the time clock ticking left, right. What really is self-hypnosis? Well, I I like to say that all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. We see it in different forms. You already mentioned the stage hypnosis, which is uh, basically using parts of what we call the hypnotic phenomena to for entertainment purposes, but they perpetuate a lot of myths and misconceptions about hypnosis. Basically, self-hypnosis, and I'll use the words interchangeably, hypnosis and self-hypnosis, but again, all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis, whether you're working with a therapist or just doing it entirely on your own or with audio materials. Um, It's a state of focused concentration. The term hypnosis was coined around 1850 by a Frenchman, but it was misnamed because it's not... Uh, hypnosis. It's not sleep at all. In fact, we we know for sure that through brainwave studies and imaging studies that the individual who's experiencing even a deep trance with hypnosis is in a, a waking state. They're awake. They're not asleep. So it's a state of focused concentration um, wherein the individual is very absorbed in their own thoughts and ideas or a set of images and ideas that they're choosing to become absorbed in as a way of delivering that message to the subconscious mind or the mind of the body. So I would say self-hypnosis can be thought of as a procedure, a process, or a state of inner absorption, uh, focused concentration, and and I tell my patients that it's just about identical to being in a daydream because the subject or the person knows where they are, what they're doing at all times, but they're also allowing themselves to become so absorbed in their own 
thoughts and ideas or the images being presented to them that they can exclude or minimize the mental energy that would be spent on the environment around them. So if you think of being absorbed in a good movie, a good book, or just sitting on the beach and staring across the uh, expanse of ocean and you're more absorbed in your thoughts and ideas than paying attention to all the other stimuli around you, that is a hypnotic trance. Now, the idea that you see in films or that I've even heard about, that I, I went to a hypnotist, they put me into a trance, and I remembered past lives, and I said things about affairs that I had that I've never told anybody else, etc. And then I came out of the trance, and I don't even remember what I said. Oh, you're, you know. you're hitting on all the myths, and all the misconceptions, or just about all of them. Um, the biggest one, biggest myth of, of that uh, presentation is that no one gets hypnotized any more so than somebody gets meditated or gets laughed. The laughing, meditation, and hypnosis are, and daydreaming are all things we can experience and others can help us to experience it, but they can't do it to us. So the greatest myth about stage hypnosis or hypnosis in general is that it's done to somebody. So nobody gets hypnotized. It sort of looks that way when somebody else is talking and the other person might have their eyes closed. And when it's done on a stage, you know, they want to do it for entertainment purposes. And I think anybody who volunteers to go down on the stage, you know, whether it's hypnosis, it's singing or dancing, they're going to perform according to what's expected of them. And there's a more pressure to perform than not to perform. Another myth is that people reveal secrets or would say things that would be embarrassing to themselves. And that's not true. At all times, an individual's aware of what they're doing. When they're on a stage in a nightclub, you know, they can say and do things that uh, with a little, little more liberally, but they've got the excuse of saying, well, it was the hypnosis that did it. Um, but in reality, people don't do things that are embarrassing. They don't reveal secrets. They don't get hypnotized by someone else. And there's no going under. There's no loss of consciousness. Uh, but there is this state of inner absorption that becomes enhanced. And there's a range of hypnotizability or hypnotic susceptibility. Uh, it's a normal distribution where some people are very, uh, it comes with great difficulty and they're very poor at it. And we call that low hypnotizability. And then there are, there are other individuals who are very imaginative and who can go right into that imaginative state of absorption. And we would call them highly hypnotizable. And about 70% of the population is average. Uh, and it was once believed that if you uh, were very low in uh, tests of hypnotizability, you'd never be able to learn it or get it. But recent research has shown that it just takes a little extra time. So on my on the audio programs that I've done, I usually point out to the listener that if it seems to be coming with difficulty or you feel like you're not getting it, don't worry. You might more than likely the individual's trying too hard and that gets in the way. Um, but all it usually is required is just a little bit extra time and a little extra practice with it. And you can take somebody who's low hypnotizable and turn them into a highly hypnotizable person. Your voice is also quite hypnotizing, Dr. G. I've noticed even just as I'm listening to it now, I'm starting to slowly enter the trance state because, of <laughs> course, I've, I've heard you guide people 
uh, guide audio listeners through various kinds of trance works. What do you think it is about your voice that makes you so uh, hypnotizing? Well, it's probably a, a cultured monotone. Um, so that, you know, the, the, the advantage is it helps when I am working with individuals um, because I can speak in this monotone. And after 37 years of practice, uh, um, I'm used to controlling my voice or using my voice in a way that helps an individual let go of paying attention to the other things going on around them so that they can use my voice as maybe a starting place of focusing their attention and then that allows them to create this passive or relaxed concentration of being more absorbed within their own thoughts and ideas. And that helps exclude these other stimuli. Uh, the drawback to this voice is that um, uh, you don't want to hear me sing. It's, all, it's like the one-note samba. Okay, fair enough. But I, what I would be curious about is, is it possible to introduce listeners right here and now to a short hypnotic exercise that could give us a sense of what it means to enter the hypnotic trance state? Well, we, we can, yeah, I would think so. Um, I can go through a, a simple, we call it the, the procedure of helping somebody go into trance or make this shift in consciousness to go into that daydream-like state. We call that a hypnotic induction method, and there are many, everything from progressive muscle relaxation to looking at a spot on the wall and suggesting their eyelids are heavy. Um, but um, there's one that I like to use that uh, just involves using some words, and we can do that right now if you if you'd like. I'd love to. Okay. So I'll be speaking to you, but it's also to the entire audience. And I would invite the audience to take my voice with you and begin by adjusting your position to be comfortable wherever you're sitting or reclining. Allow your eyes to close. Let your eyes close. And closing your eyes is already a step in minimizing the influence of of distraction from visual stimuli. And with your eyes closed, you'll notice that now you can pay more attention to the sounds around you. Survey the sounds. Notice them, including my voice. And allow or give your permission for all of the sounds around you that may be safely ignored to be there as background sounds. Allow them to turn into the sounds of waves on the ocean. Let any of the sounds that are naturally occurring around you be pleasant, and even sounds that at first might seem to be distracting or annoying, perhaps a television playing, a, a motor outside, uh, other sounds and noises, a dog barking. Use everything. Give them your permission to be there, and if they seem very distracting or annoyingly distracting, then take control of them by commanding that they be there. And by unplugging yourself or disconnecting from any struggle with those things around you, then you can direct your attention inward. And this becomes a very gentle journey into the center of yourself. It's like unplugging, disconnecting, detaching from all of the obligations and responsibilities of the world, and now allowing yourself to turn on imagination. And in imagination, you can travel to any place on the planet and be there now, 
putting together all you would experience, what you would hear, see, smell, taste, feel the warmth of a morning sun, or perhaps the cool breeze off an ocean, or the sound of waves. Maybe you'll notice that the sky is filled with stars. In your imagination, you can have anything you desire exactly as you would like it to be, or you may allow it to unfold and evolve in very pleasant ways, effortlessly for yourself. Sooner or later, you discover you can also travel in time. You can regress going back to a pleasant experience you enjoyed, perhaps a honeymoon, a vacation, a delightful friendship, time of play, or you can progress into the future and see yourself experiencing what you want as if it has already happened, it's already been achieved and accomplished, and now you can enjoy what has already happened for you. In your imagination, you may also be taking my voice with you as a background sound, sometimes noticing that you're not noticing what I'm saying, and that's fine, for you really don't have to listen to me. You're doing this with two parts of your mind. One part of your mind is your conscious thinking mind, the part of you that will naturally continue with thoughts or ideas, questions, that's fine. And the other part of mind is what we would call subconscious, sub because it's below or beneath your thinking level of awareness. And your subconscious mind is the mind of your body. Your subconscious is so much smarter than I am or you are. It's the part of you that is managing all four chambers of your heart, your pulse, each breath, managing your immune system, and managing the entire community of over 70 trillion cells within your body. And each cell in your body responds to the images, ideas, and thoughts and feelings you put in your mind. So by allowing yourself to relax comfortably now, peacefully now, making this a gentle journey within, all of the cells of your body begin to respond or resonate or vibrate to this message of comfort that you're allowing yourself. And at all times, you're in control. You're making this happen by letting it happen. And if at any time you find yourself trying or struggling or making an effort to do this, let go. You make this happen by letting it happen. It's a very passive or relaxed form of concentration. And we call that trance in the clinical language, but it's just about identical to a daydream. And in a daydream, you know where you are, you know what you're doing, but you're choosing to let yourself be more absorbed within. And the beauty of doing this is that you are accessing the mind-body connection. All the cells of your body respond to images of health, healing, vitality, energy. You can also offer images or ideas of accomplishments and achievements you desire. And the mind of your body responds to them as if they are real. For your subconscious cannot tell the difference between what is real and what you imagine. And you've had times perhaps of jumping out of the way of something on the carpet or floor that turned out to be harmless. But in the moment you jumped out of the way, a part of you jumped you out of the way before you could even think to do it. And that same part of you, the subconscious, is always protecting you, always looking out for your very best interest and value. 
So you can create images, ideas of what you desire, and the mind of your body responds to them as they are real. And in this experience now, allow yourself permission to know that whenever you need to, whenever you choose to, you can do this again. You can return by simply closing your eyes and allowing yourself to create a a gentle journey into the center of yourself, turning on your imagination to recreate a pleasant scene. And sooner or later, you discover that you're not noticing many of the things that are going on around you in a, a comfortable and safe manner, which lets you direct your attention to the mind of your body to receive all the messages you desire for health, healing, vitality, achievement, And this all belongs to you. You're doing this. This all belongs to you. And now, allow yourself to shift over to another part of this experience. And that is in bringing yourself to a comfortably alert waking state, a refreshed alert waking state, as I count from one up to five, using each number to progressively feel a greater alertness and refreshment. So as I'm counting from one to two, arms and legs begin to feel a wave of energy, of refreshing energy from two to three, hands and fingers, feet and toes, getting ready to move and do things again from three to four. And now a delightful refreshment joins you at the very front surface of your mind. So at five, you open your eyes and may now assess the experience you've had, feeling quite refreshed and feeling good. So that would be an example of how it would work. Wonderful. I think that's really helpful. And then what we do, you know, the the parts of it are the induction, meaning start talking and directing attention inward. And then there's some words and phrases to sort of educate about what it is. And I think people feel safer with hypnosis when they know what it is and they realize it's not done to them by a hypnotist. And then the the final part is what we call alerting or arousing, where you want to make a section of it where you come to an alert waking state um, feeling good and feeling refreshed. And at that point, I like to do what we call debriefing. So I would ask you, Tammy, as as I was speaking, what were you experiencing? What did you feel? What was going on with you? Well, I came up with a, an image, which was a beautiful ocean spot. So I was sitting by the water and uh, breathing it in and relaxing and feeling quite fabulous. Excellent, excellent. Did you have any sensations of heaviness or lightness or warmth or coolness? I, I think basically it was a feeling of um, relaxation, warmth, sparkliness, those kinds of things. Were there any times that you could notice that you weren't noticing what I was saying? I noticed that I felt a little like I was drifting in and out. In ah, and excellent, out. excellent. Again, all of these things, the questions I'm asking, you know, are looking at what types of hypnotic phenomena you experience, like alterations in perception of feeling heavy or light, or was your imagination able to recreate, uh, you know, like sounds of waves or the feeling of being at the ocean in, in your case, um, or whether or not you could notice that you weren't noticing what I was saying, in much the same way we experience a, a daydream. And um, let me ask you, how long were you doing this? How long did it seem to you that we were doing this experience? Uh, it, it felt like it was around 10, 15 minutes. 
Okay. Um, sometimes when I ask that question, individuals might say it seemed like three minutes, and it might have actually been 20 minutes. Others might say, oh, it felt like it was 25 minutes, and we may have only done it for eight or 12 minutes. So time distortion, alterations in perception, uh, being able to recreate an imagination, also having some better recall in memory, those are all the hypnotic phenomena that are typical, but they're also waking state phenomena. There's nothing special about the hypnosis. It's just the hypnosis just helps somebody focus uh, their concentration in this relaxed manner so that they can create those phenomena with greater ease, almost effortlessly. Now, I know, Dr. G, you've applied self-hypnosis, and you call it medical self-hypnosis, to all kinds of issues and symptoms. And I'm curious if there are certain symptoms, certain health challenges that you've found hypnosis works best with. Yes, uh, there are are many, actually. Um, and, and I think that's a good point you mentioned about why I, I call it medical hypnosis. And um, the terms medical hypnosis or clinical hypnosis, I'm using deliberately to distinguish it from the stage hypnotists. And uh, the stage hypnotists and the media have just perpetuated so many misconceptions, it turns off people from recognizing this is, can be a valuable tool for themselves. So, But basically, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. And whenever somebody asks myself or Dr. Andrew Weil, my colleague and friend at the Integrative Medicine Program where I work, um, what does hypnosis work best for? Uh, we Usually our response is skin problems and gut problems. We, we find that for some reason, uh, things like irritable bowel uh, syndrome, uh, ulcerative colitis, the, those kind of GI problems, and skin problems, including viruses like the human papillomavirus or warts. Um, in fact, just yesterday I received the International Journal of Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis where they report that hypnosis was five to one times superior to medical approaches for treating warts in a sample of uh, women. Uh, so, and, and we know that warts are, are the virus, the human papillomavirus. Um, hypnosis is also quite effective in problems with pain and some individuals can use it for anesthesia. We know that when combined with um, surgery or if somebody learns hypnosis before a surgery, um, they, they have less anxiety, uh, they have less pain afterward, they use less medication and less anesthesia, um, their recovery times are faster, they don't have the side effects from any anesthesia that's being used, and they have shorter hospital stays and faster wound healing. Those have been well documented in numerous studies now. Could you explain why in some of these examples you think self-hypnosis is particularly effective? Like take an example like you mentioned with warts. Why would that be an area of strength? Well, I think in part that we do have you know, hypnosis allows us to access uh, or connect to the mind-body connection. When we're anxious, our body produces uh, stress responses with cortisol, and those oftentimes interfere with immunity. Uh, they lessen or lower our immunity. And, and when we combine relaxation with hypnosis, which we usually do because it's motivating and comforting, the relaxation response in and of itself is helpful in being able to um, 
lower blood pressure, to increase blood flow, and that increased blood flow delivers more oxygen and nutrients and other chemistries. It enhances the immune system. So I, th- I think the short answer would be hypnosis or using the power of one's mind allows them to access the mind-body connection and basically direct what the body is doing at that subconscious level for their comfort and for their healing. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've worked with Sounds True to publish an audio series and a book on working with self-hypnosis for weight management and weight loss. How how does it work when it comes to the self-hypnosis diet? Well, the self-hypnosis diet has actually turned out to be more interesting than I first thought. We've been getting excellent feedback from individuals using it. It's not a diet at all. In fact, in the self-hypnosis diet, we discourage restrictive eating and we discourage dieting. But what the self-hypnosis diet, um, the book, does is it helps individuals learn hypnosis and apply hypnosis in a variety of ways that will help them achieve their ideal or perfect weight. Um, One of those ways is in helping to create uh, lifelong patterns of eating, hunger management, and activity patterns that will basically let them eat anything they want once these patterns are established. Um, It also addresses emotional factors that influence eating. Sometimes they're very conscious where people realize that they eat out of emotion. Sometimes it's totally unconscious where they are don't realize why they have the weight and yet the weight is performing a function for them. Um, we use, I think we have some examples in the book of individuals that experience the trauma in the, in early life and then Later in life, they have weight they can't shed no matter what they do until we address what purpose is the weight serving. And in some many cases, it can be protection. It controls attractiveness so they don't have an uncomfortable or scary or traumatic experience again. Um, It also enhances motivation for uh, doing all the right stuff, choosing the right and wholesome foods, the correct portion sizes, being able to go through the holidays and maintain uh, these healthy patterns of eating and activity, um, and also being able to enhance their motivation, to really enjoy it. it. I think a key to it is you have to enjoy all the changes you're introducing, and that's one of the nice things about hypnosis when we apply it for habit control, whether it be smoking or weight loss. Um, If you're feeling comfortable and it seems to be happening effortlessly, our motivation increases. And I think even in our home study course um, where we have our hypnotic apothecary, that's uh, another one of the Sounds True programs we did, there was one audio program on loving exercise, loving to exercise. And so that would, that's another part of the self-hypnosis diet, increasing motive, all the motivating, all the motivation one needs to create uh, lifelong patterns of healthy eating and physical activity. In many ways, the self-hypnosis diet is a follow-up to uh, Dr. Weil's uh, eating well for optimum health. This is, you know, we're just putting it into play by using the power of mind as well. Now, I understand how if I spend time in a trance state visualizing myself exercising or visualizing myself eating vegetables and salads and being drawn to those kinds of foods, how that would help me make habit changes in my life. I I get that. 
That seems sort of intuitively obvious. What's not obvious to me is that the underlying emotional issues you mentioned, you know, perhaps I'm, I'm overeating because I want protection or because I don't feel safe. How does self-hypnosis help me uncover and then heal those deeper emotional issues that are really driving the weight gain? Um, oftentimes we have to ask ourselves to give us the answer. And um, let me give you a quick example. I, I saw a young lady, uh, she was in her 30s, she had two children, and she was probably well over 250 pounds. And in the course of taking history from her, she had been on all kinds of diets. But she told me that she, when she was younger, she was quite um, thin and that she uh, gained weight when she went to this modeling college. She was scholarshiped to go to a, a modeling college. And it was during doing the hypnosis that a recollection came back to her that she arrived to the college early. A kindly janitor showed her to her dormitory room um, because the facility hadn't, she was the first to arrive. But unfortunately, later that night, he came back and raped her. And over the course of the first three to four months in this college, she started putting on weight. And it wasn't until we actually had done the hypnosis some 12 or 15 years later that that recollection came to mind. It was out of mind, but it wasn't out of body. And once that came to mind, then she could make a choice. So I think whenever we uncover uh, a psychological or emotional reason for a set of symptoms, whether they be a headache, a stomachache, or excessive weight, the next step is being able to ask ourselves, do I still need it? And then we tell our mind-body what we want instead, and we do it in a way that lets it feel safe giving us that. Because uh, again, oftentimes it's producing symptoms either because it's protecting us or there's an emotional conflict. Think of the metaphors, uh, which are basically the language of the mind-body of, you know, you have a boss who's... Um, a real pain in the neck. And that's the way you describe that person. You know, he's a real pain in the neck. He comes into the room and you reach for the back of your neck because the muscles are getting tight. Well, the emotional conflict is you can't tell that person what you really think of them. With, otherwise, you might lose your job or jeopardize your job. So instead, the mind of the body says, I'll take it. And it goes out of mind but that metaphor about the person being a pain in the neck creates headaches, neck pain, and that's it, it, due to the emotional conflict of you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. So the body, or mind body rather, says, I'll do it, I'll take it, I'll express it for you. So frequently when working with individuals with medical problems or medical conditions, skin conditions actually in particular, I'm asking the metaphorical question while they're in trance, what's getting under your skin? Who's rubbing you the wrong way? What's, what's erupting? What's, what's coming to the surface? What needs to come to the surface? And that's literal language that the subconscious responds to because the subconscious mind doesn't use figures of speech the way we do consciously. It literalizes them. So if we say he's a pain in the neck, muscles in our neck uh, are going to respond in a literal fashion. If we say, oh, that just burns me up, we might have more stomach acid and reflux, or, oh, that just bugs the out of me. We might wind up with some irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, so um, 
oftentimes when we're looking at the emotional factors, we're looking to see is it functional, is it protecting the person, or is it dealing with an emotional conflict that um, they're darned if they do and darned if they don't so that we can find a better solution. How can the practitioner of self-hypnosis be sure that they're not just covering up conflicts or problems, but that they're actually uprooting them and getting underneath them? Do you know I mean? I could see there could be a tendency for something. I mean, in, in, in many of the applications. Do you know what I mean? I'm yes, just going to keep, yes. keep visualizing point. the positive, keep visualizing the positive, but I'm really covering something up in the process. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think a part of uh, what we're doing in, um, in, in the audios that I've created uh, with Sounds True, there's usually suggestions offered during the trance work that if there's a purpose or if, if there's a function for these symptoms, that the subconscious can show that to you in a comfortable manner. And then they come to mind where all of a sudden you, the individual has the aha, but in a comfortable way of seeing the meaning of those symptoms, uh, much like, again, a skin condition, understanding, you know, what's under, you know, what's been, what's rubbing them the wrong way or what's getting under their skin or who's getting under their skin. So the, the question is, all we have to do is ask the metaphorical question. Who's burning you up? What's burning you up? Who's rubbing you the wrong way? Who's the pain in the neck? Um, you know, what do you need to get off your chest? What's smothering you or suffocating you? And the mind body presents that information, and it, it really is an aha moment of, oh, yes. And then now we can choose again, because frequently many of these things happened uh, they may have happened uh, many years ago or decades ago, but the pattern keeps repeating because, again, it's out of mind, but it's not out of body until we had release it or address it with those metaphorical questions when doing our self-hypnosis. And do you think that the more that one repeats a medical self-hypnosis approach to a problem, that it's more likely then that the aha moment will emerge at some point if you keep doing it over and over again? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think that uh, it's not uncommon when I see patients in my practice that uh, I might um, see them uh, maybe a week or two later, and they'll tell me that, you know, I was practicing my self-hypnosis, and I had, you know, all these recollections come to mind of this experience I had, or it might have been a, an uncomfortable experience, or just a conflicting experience, or it could have been an experience that happened on the playground in second grade. And then they come to realize, you know, I think that's connected to this. And it came to mind because they were working on removing a set of uh, symptoms. So, for example, if somebody, let's say, has a, a fear that they're working with, I'm not sure, what, what's a common fear you've worked with a lot of clients with, Dr. G? Um, well, public speaking, a fear of embarrassment, a threat to the ego that I'll embarrass myself or I'll make a fool of myself. So public speaking fear is a, a common one or social anxiety. Okay, and so then part of the self-hypnosis program would be to visualize yourself, I presume, in front of a group, speaking successfully, seeing everybody clap and applaud and give you rounds of standing ovations. Is that true? Would that be part yeah, of the... Yeah, it'd be, you'd want to focus on the positive and not give any energy to the negative. And it, and in, in a case like that, it's not uncommon that if the individuals, particularly if they ask themselves the question, where did this come from? 
You know, where did I learn this? Because when, uh, you know, in the one program we did for Sounds True, Relieve Anxiety with Medical Hypnosis, in that one, there are some um, trance work sessions where we're asking the question, where'd you learn this? Because we're only born with two fears, falling and loud noises. You know, as babies, those are the only two fears that sort of come with the equipment. Everything else that we're afraid of is learned, and anything that can be learned can be unlearned. And hypnosis is a great way to do that learning, unlearning, and learning with at a subconscious level. So um, we ask the individual, where'd you learn that? And it's quite common that an individual had one experience of maybe going to the blackboard in fourth grade or seventh grade where they actually panicked or they got scared or people laughed at them or they didn't know the material. And that, like a seed, sort of germinated and became a, an anxiety that they have throughout their life until they address it again. Now, this this thing that you said, it's interesting. Uh, we're born with two fears, falling and loud noises, the fear of loud noises. What about just the in- inherent and instinctive fear of dying? Um, fear of extinction. I mean, don't you think we're born with that? I don't know. You know, I, when I say loud noises and falling, I'm just thinking of the research that um, has been done on fear. But I... I don't know if they've ever looked at it, you know, at that that level of, uh, you know, uh, of our, you know, our, our mortality. Um, I do know that, you know, when fear of mortality, our mortality does arise in our lifetime. Let's say somebody gets cancer or has a bad illness. Um, there can be a lot of anxiety provoked by the fear of dying, and. Uh, one of my colleagues, an oncologist uh, who uses a lot of hypnosis, came up with a hypnotic death rehearsal for patients that were very, very anxious about death. Uh, and by going through it in imagination, uh, in a comfortable way, they discharge the anxiety and they no longer become afraid of it. Uh, so I, I think we can take just about any fear and replace it by feeling comfortable and in control. Um, mm-hmm. And it takes it may take a little practice, you know, a few sessions uh, on our own even, but, um, you know, the, the, the sympathetic nervous system produces the sympathetic arousal, which is anxiety, and the opposite of that is the relaxation response. So anytime we combine relaxation with thoughts that we're choosing to have about something, we are unlearning the fear associated to it, and we're learning comfort associated to it. In fact, that's um, a large part of the Relieve Anxiety program I did and also the Relax RX program, uh, which was uh, heavily based on just getting really good at producing a relaxation response physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. Now, beginning in May, you're going to be offering with Sounds True an online course in self-hypnosis. And I can imagine that people would want to take the course because... There's all kinds of issues they would like to resolve in their life using this technique. But I can also imagine people would be like, God, I'd love to learn this so I could use this technique with various clients that I work with, if I'm a healing practitioner of different sorts. What what do you think about that? Can people learn self-hypnosis from audio programs and from an online course and then just go off and start helping other people? Well, I, you know, I, I sort of make a distinction between, you know, training clinicians, because, um, you know, there's this term hypnotherapist, 
um, that's becoming common parlance. But actually, I look at it more as either somebody's a physician, a dentist, a social worker, a, a marriage family therapist, psychotherapist, or psychologist that uses clinical hypnosis in their trade or in their field of expertise, because hypnosis in and of itself is not a therapy. It's a collection of tools that can be applied in many different ways. Um, I, I know that the research that's been done to compare the effectiveness of uh, using audio materials versus a live person have shown that audio materials can be just as effective. But I think in, like, I'm really excited about doing this online course because it gives me the chance to actually talk and speak with the, the students that are going to be enrolled. And I think there's, there's a special magic when you can address your own personal problems and get a personal answer. And that really helps remove the, any of the hurdles or obstacles to the progress one makes in learning. The home study course that I created, um, I think is, quite good. Um, it's, it's something I've been wanting to do for many, many years, and I'm really grateful for the, for the opportunity you gave me. And now, the opportunity to actually talk to people as they're progressing along with that course is, is, is exciting to me. But what you mentioned about hypnotherapy as a particular field is that you're not necessarily in favor of hypnotherapy being a distinct field, you're thinking that it should be combined with a different set of trainings and clinical expertise. So if I'm a doctor, I can use hypnotherapy as one of the tools in my toolbox. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it is, exactly. And, and my rule of thumb is I don't think a clinician should use hypnosis to treat a condition unless they're also trained to treat that condition without hypnosis in some way. So I'm not saying every psychologist has to learn how to become a surgeon, but certainly can understand how to use psychotherapy and psychological techniques to help somebody get the best results from a surgery. But uh, you're right. I, you know, we, I, I was, I was working at the medical department at IBM uh, some years ago, and I noticed that some of the employees that retired enrolled in a lay school of hypnosis to become certified hypnotherapists. And some of these schools were a few weekends, some a few months, and they learned a lot about the techniques of hypnosis, but they didn't have any background in medicine, psychology, social work, or the other fields that would be actually using this therapeutically. And I likened it very much to going to school to become an injectionist. You get good at learning how to do an intramuscular injection, a subcutaneous injection, or even an intravenous injection, but you're just an injectionist, and you don't have the background about what to put in the syringe and how to titrate the dosage. So I think that there's a lot of people that use the term, I'm a hypnotherapist or a certified hypnotherapist, um, and it doesn't mean that they have the background to really treat the conditions therapeutically, they just went to a lay school and got that credential. And a colleague of mine, um, a fellow, a Dr. Stephen Eichel, um, actually applied for certification from about eight different certification programs in, in hypnosis. But he, he applied for his cat, Zoe, he, and he put on the application form, Zoe, 
D period Katz, K-A-T-Z. So it's Zoe the cat in German. Right. Very funny. Yeah. And he got eight certificates back for the money that Dr. Zoe D. Katz is a certified hypnotherapist. And I think that that's a, a danger to the public because, you know, I, hypnosis is, I think, is very, very safe. And But there are times when we are dealing with some sensitive material or sometimes some traumatic material that it'd be, it's, it's better to have somebody who knows what they're doing and can handle any issues that arise rather than somebody who just learned how to do the techniques. Well, yeah, even back to the example that you gave of self-hypnosis working with warts, uh, you know, I would want somebody helping me, thank God I don't have warts, but uh, that would know the proper analysis medically of my situation, as well as giving me some hypnotherapy exercises in case it turned out that it was a more complicated skin situation that was actually a symptom of something, you know, deeper or more complex. You know, I wouldn't want to just be trusting a hypnotherapist. Well, um, yeah, I would agree with you on that. I'm, um, you know, there's really only one bona fide certification program that I'm aware of, and that's the one that's uh, available through the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. Uh, it's one of the two major medical and psychological associations devoted to the research, study, and training of clinical hypnosis. And the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis does have a, a certification program that requires supervised training, uh, a number of years of experience, and a couple different levels of certification. For those listening, they also offer a referral service at asch.net. Well, Dr. G, I just want to circle back for one second, because you you mentioned how the body listens to messages that are literal. It listens literally. So when we say, you know, that person's a pain in the neck, it hears it literally. How do we know that? How do we know that's what the body is listening to? Uh, I guess I would, I can't present any scientific evidence about the linguistics of it, but um, it just seems that that's the way the body responds. And in the last five to 10 years, we now have neuroimaging uh, abilities that we didn't have in the past. And the studies are really quite exciting to me because now we can see what's happening in the brain. And it was at one time believed, well, it's all in your mind. You know, you're just doing this in your imagination. Uh, not so. What we're seeing is that, you know, the Dalai Lama was correct. People that use their mind to meditate are actually changing their brain, neuroplasticity or brain plasticity. And with the neuroimaging with hypnosis studies, we're seeing that if somebody is imagining that their right foot uh, is uh, hot or on fire or being burned, the part of the brain where that would correspond lights up and is active as if it is really happening. So as somebody's imagining things, and it seems that the words we use do get literally translated and the brain responds or the body and brain and mind body respond uh, in that literal manner. Uh, there's a, I've got some textbooks from philosophers on metaphor that um, is really some heavy stuff, but uh, I do think that our ability to, as humans to conceptualize meta metaphorically uh, involves uh, many more dynamics of our brain function than we thought about before. Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Tammy. I mean, that, that would be an ideal question for, for research to, to look at. Well, I'm sure as somebody who's 
taken so many people through hypnotic trances, you've studied and really looked at what kind of language works best, what kind of language the unconscious will respond to. So I guess I'm curious just to understand more, besides that it takes things literally, what kind of language does our body slash unconscious best respond to? Oh, that's a great question, too. Uh, One of my teachers um, many years ago was a a psychiatrist named Milton Erickson. And Dr. Erickson uh, was sort of known for a style of using indirect methods, and he was a master with words and language. And I think that one of the greatest things I learned from him was the power and the importance of tailoring Tailoring meaning if you can make something more personal to somebody, it's more effective for them. So if somebody buys a relaxation tape and the person is describing sitting on the beach and the person's never been to the beach or they don't even like sand or the beach, it's going to be very ineffective. But if you know that somebody uh, maybe attended a particular school or they grew up in Indiana and you can mention, you know, the getting a fresh sweet corn in August, uh, something just as minor as uh, a personal thing that is tailored to them really can have a very profound effect on influencing that trance experience, empowering it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Anything else, though, about language? Um, I think it always has to be positive, and we have to be aware of a couple words that we commonly use that can undermine our effort. For example, try. You know, we use the word try all the time, and there's no literal representation of a try. I can't show anyone a try. It, it doesn't occupy space. It has no weight. We can't measure it. It's literally not there. It's only a figure of speech. But when we use the term try, uh the subconscious literalizes it, which means puts it on trial, see whether or not. And I remember one study oh, many, many years ago where they gave a group of patients a prescription for a skin condition and were told, try this for two weeks. And then they randomly assigned another group of patients with the same condition and gave them the same prescription, but were told, this will do it in two weeks or use this for two weeks. And the group that tried it or were instructed to try it had 50% less success. So I always tell my patients, uh, and I think I might even have it in in our Sounds True products, remember what Yoda said in Star Wars, there is no try. There is do and do not. So anytime we're doing hypnosis or self-hypnosis, if we find ourselves saying try, just convert it to do. Um, uh, Do it rapidly, do it poorly, do it correctly, do it easily, do it gently, but no trying is allowed is sort of my motto. And the other word is not, N-O-T. Emile Couet, uh, a doctor in France in 1920, wrote the first book on auto-suggestion, and he was the individual that came up with giving his patients affirmations. He's famous for the one, uh, every day in every way I'm getting better and better. And he advised his patients, when you do give yourself self-talk and positive affirmations, remember, never the nots. Um, Because when we say not, it doesn't mean anything to the subconscious. If we say, I do not want a cigarette, all the subconscious hears is I want a cigarette because you can't literalize N-O-T, a not. So I would say that the key thing about 
the language we use is keep it positive, and that's the beauty of imagery as well. It's It bypasses any of the semantic difficulties. If we can picture it the way we want it, the message is delivered quite directly without any translation. And I'm not supposed to use any negative imagery. So, for example, in the case that we used of the fear of public speaking, I don't want to say, uh, I don't want to imagine... I'm not going to uh, have people boo me. I don't want to bother going right. through I'm that exercise. I'm not going to stutter. I'm not going to forget where I'm at. We don't want to include any any of the negatives. We want to suggest to ourselves what we do want and not waste any energy on what we don't want. And the reason for that is that the subconscious cannot tell the difference between what's real and what's imagined. It just simply acts on everything we're thinking and imagining. It's like a real-time uh, system that vibrates to what we create with our thoughts and ideas in mind. Um, I, I, a great example that I use with particularly the non-believers, and these are usually like gentlemen engineers over the age of 50 who tell me, I don't know why my doctor sent me to you. I don't believe in any of this stuff. And I'll go outside in, in the Tucson summer, I'll sit under the shade of a palm tree and have them imagine how cold it was um, where they were working in Poughkeepsie, New York, or Rochester, and in the winter, a bitter cold, and really having them close their eyes and get into imagining how cold it is. And then I have them open their eyes and look at the goosebumps on their arms, and we're sitting in a 105-degree Tucson shade, but yet their body produced goosebumps just to the thoughts they put in their mind. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I think we just want to keep it all po- as positive as we can and catch ourselves because we all, you know, use patterns of speech that we take for granted without realizing how would that be interpreted subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Good. And just one final question, Dr. G. I'm curious if you've found symptoms or conditions that hypnosis simply can't touch. Hmm. You know. <laughs> There's some that I found don't work as well as others, um, but I, you know, my colleague and friend, Dr. Andrew Weil, over 25 years ago, he would send patients to me, and I would call him up, and I'd say, you know, gee, I, I, I don't know anyone's ever used hypnosis for this, uh, maybe a kidney disease or uh, immune disorder, and his response was always, just do it. We don't know how powerful the mind is. And we discovered that we were able to help individuals with transplants of corneas and tissues and to selectively repress the rejection factor just using the power of their mind to do it um, and many others. So I'm always open to the idea of, you know, our minds are much more powerful than we realize. And I think this whole emerging field of neuroplasticity or brain plasticity is right up the alley of using hypnosis. So, um, But I have had times when, for one reason or another, either because the condition um, wasn't amenable to using the power of the mind, or there might be factors involved that uh, there's maybe another destiny involved for that person, or other factors that the hypnosis just doesn't take enough of the layers off of it mm-hmm. to be effective. Thanks, Dr. G. That was a very comprehensive and useful introduction to medical self-hypnosis. And beginning May 5th, Dr. Gurgovich will be offering an online course on self-hypnosis 
He's also the author of several Sounds True audio learning programs, including Relieve Anxiety, Using Medical Self-Hypnosis, The Self-Hypnosis Diet, Relax Rx, which is a program that teaches relaxation techniques using medical self-hypnosis, as well as the Self-Hypnosis Home Study Course, and a program that he recorded along with Dr. Andrew Weil, which is an introduction to medical self-hypnosis, all available at SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. SoundsTrue.com.